Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Still Watching WandaVision. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This week on the podcast, we are covering episode three of WandaVision. This is the second episode of the podcast, but the third episode of the show. It's a little confusing, but that's how Disney released everything. So uh, this will be covering episode three of WandaVision. Uh, if you have not watched that yet, you know, spoilers aho- ahoy, spoilers ahead. So you might want to press pause and go watch episode three of WandaVision. And if you were just joining us for the first time, what what Richard and I like to do on this podcast is pick a show that we're watching, watch it closely, break it down, discuss it, bring it to you. Uh, sometimes we have interviews, sometimes we don't. This week we do. We've got director Matt Shackman, who directed every episode of the season. Uh, so he is here to talk a little bit about that. And then the second half of this podcast, this series that we're doing on WandaVision, um, our, our Vanity Fair colleague, uh, Anthony Bresnikan will hop on to go like very comic book, deep nerdery with me uh, to cover WandaVision from that angle. Uh, so this first half is a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a newcomer's approach. <laughs> we, we- <laughs> <A dum-dum>. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then we will, we will get more advanced in the second half, including sort of like theory, uh, like comic book informed theories and speculations about what might be happening. Um, in this first half though, Richard and I will be reading your uh, emails. We've got a bunch of emails about WandaVision. You can always email us still watching pod at gmail.com. Uh, and then Richard was like, Hey, Joanna, 
can I read an, an email from time to time? And uh, I realized I was hogging them. So yes, Richard, do you have any emails that you want to read this week? Why I do actually. Yes. Thank you. Um, so we got a bunch, which is exciting. And I, you know, people should, because this is such a theory show um, that uh, it, you know, it, it, it's nice to kind of open the, the discourse, uh, you know, outside of you, me and Anthony. Um, so, that said, some of the emails are not necessarily positive <laughs> uh, thus far because we're just kind of all getting used to this new show. Um, Sarah Wingo uh, has written to us and saying that, you know, basically that she is kind of the target demo. But uh, t- she says, to me, the first two episodes felt like two half hour trailers. I still don't feel like I know anything more about the show than I did before watching them. Nothing about these two episodes made me feel hooked or like there's something I have to tune in for next week. I'm 36 and I watched a lot of Nick at Night 2. The pastiche is fun, but there wasn't enough there. Um, in your first episode about it, you mentioned that the percentage of mystery is about 5 to 10% of each episode. And I'd say that's generous. I just feel like in a season that will be approximately four and a half hours long, spending the first hour mostly indulging in TV nostalgia with a tiny bit of plot sprinkled in felt very empty. Uh, she says some more things, but I think that's kind of the crux of what she was saying. And, you know, I do, I can, I understand what she's saying and I, and I kind of do feel it. I feel like I, fi- I filed a review of the first three episodes. Um, and, uh, expressed a little bit of like, okay, like let's get to the meat of it. And I can imagine that it being kind of parsed out in half hour installments each week, people might get a little itchy, but also that might kind of lend or, or, you know, kind of build the fun aspect of it up. Cause you're, you're really, you know, anticipating something, you know, to be revealed in a way that when you have every episode dumped, like on Netflix, um, that, that same feeling doesn't quite get, um, as intense. Yeah, it's it's true. And, and I've heard from a bunch of people that they feel like there's not enough mystery, that it's maybe too pastiche loaded in, in these first two episodes. Um, and I think Sarah, you know, Sarah definitely is the target demo. I, I know Sarah from a long time ago. I first met her uh, on Twitter. She was uh, modeling like a Captain Marvel uh, cardigan. And uh, so she is definitely the target demographic uh, for this show. And, and if it's not working for her, who is it going to work for? But, it, you know, it's definitely working for some people. Um, and I, I can only say... I think this episode kicks the uh, the mystery into a higher gear. Uh, you know, is is my uh, feeling on it. What do you think, Richard? Yes, I do. I hope that Sarah um, feels you know differently about after watching the third episode because it is, um, you know, the mystery machine really starts to hum. <laughs> you know, uh, and um, I think that they just I think they kind of needed to do two episodes of table setting um, to sort of fully immerse us in the premise. I mean, the premise is not that hard to pick up. It's, it's old TV shows, but um, I think to kind of lull you into a sense of like, this is the whole world of the show. And then to start picking apart that or, or zooming out a bit. Um, yeah. Maybe those first couple episodes um, were necessary to get the kind of shock of, of the end of this episode. Yeah, and uh, like, uh, you know, we haven't seen episode four, so we don't know what the percentage of the mystery is in, in that show. That's the that's going to be like the 80s set uh, episode, I presume. Um, but, you know, it's already world breaking this episode three. You know what I mean? So if you think of the first episode as a pilot, um, like the first two episodes, which aired together as sort of like a, a 40 minute, 50 minute pilot, you know, by episode by the by the second installment we're already uh, outside the bubble, as it were. 
uh, and we and we could talk about what we feel like that means. But um, you know, I, I'm curious to see how those people who are impatient for a mystery feel after this episode. I, I, you know, we had the advantage of seeing all three episodes together, and the fact that we got to see the end of this episode made me feel like we wouldn't be stuck in pastiche land uh, for too long. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Any other emails you want to read, Richard? Yeah. Um, just a quick one um, that takes us kind of into a thought experiment uh, of sorts. Um, Christian writes to us and says, uh, I always found Vision to be one of the least interesting MCU characters. He's always serious and dry. However, I'm really dig- digging WandaVision. It's like Paul Bettany unleashed. He was excellent in the second episode, especially. Is there a MCU character y'all find on the lower end of the interspectrum that maybe deserves more exploration? Um, which I think is an interesting question. And I want to hear your answer first, because you think, I think you know a bit more of the, the MCU than I do. Um, I guess I would say the character that I haven't found that interesting in the films has been um, Hawkeye, which is Jeremy Renner's mm. character. You know, like you, you look at um, which characters have gotten Disney plus shows and some of them make a, tremendous amount of sense like like tom Hiddleston's loki right that is a huge fan favorite in any iteration that he shows up in the mcu i think they realized you know they, they killed him off for dramatic effect they're bringing him back um and and that feels like a, a slam dunk uh no-brainer right yeah. But the fact that Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye is getting his own show, I think to some people who are only familiar with the MCU might be like, him? <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. what, what is he, funny? Um, but, uh, you know, I'm really excited for that show, actually, because, um, you know, it's clear that they're basing it a bit off. I don't know exactly how it's going to fit in with the entire MCU continuity, but it's clear that they're basing it off this um, – great Matt Fraction run of the comics called Hawkeye um, where Hawkeye uh, is working a lot with a with a younger female archer named Kate Bishop uh, and they've uh, cast uh, Haley Steinfeld as that character. That Hawkeye in that comic run is so lovable and he's very different from who Jeremy Renner is played. And he's also like a single young guy and Jeremy Renner is playing like a family man in the movie. So I don't, I don't quite know how exactly they're going to make that work, but I love that Hawkeye on the page. And I'm really interested to see if they can get Renner's Hawkeye enough in that place where I feel super excited about following that character. But like, if I didn't know about those comic books, I'd be like, why am I getting a Hawkeye TV show? But, but I am excited because of those comic books. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, you know, I I consider him as, you know, he's a minor Avenger. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's someone I would consider. How about you, Richard? Well, I mean, I am very intrigued by the briefly glimpsed Proxima Midnight played by the great Carrie Coon, uh, in, (laughs) uh, Infinity War. Uh, but yeah. she's a villain. That would be harder to do. We, if we had enough antiheroes. Um, so I'm going to say the MCU character I would like to see more of, maybe in their own standalone series, is the character Christine Everhart, played by Leslie Bibb, a reporter in Iron, huh? Iron Man. I think she might be in one of the, maybe the the, the sequel. Um, because I think it would be kind of fun. What does a reporter do in an era of like Thanos and superheroes and aliens and Viking gods or whatever? Like, how does that affect, affect like, do you have to write a lot of clickbait about like what was, you know, Black <laughs> Widow wearing at the, you know, like, I don't know. And I think that would be uh-huh. a really, you know, if, if WandaVision is presented as like, look at all the different forms Marvel content can take. 
well, how about like kind of a workplace dramedy about a journalist who just happens to be reporting a lot on like the craziness of superheroes? And do you recall where Christine uh, Everhart works, Richard? I believe, does she work for Vanity Fair? She's a Vanity Fair reporter. I had forgotten that, but maybe that's why I was just drawn (laughs) to her that much more. Yeah, who uh, who's, who sleeps with the subject of the cover? The the, the whole premise. As we all of, do of, at Vanity Fair. <laughs> the the whole premise of that character, who like ambushes Tony Stark at a fancy party to tell him she's writing a profile of him, which is not how those things work at all. Uh, and then sleeps with him. I was like, yeah, that's there was a whole run of uh, stories of people working for Vanity Fair, just like showing up and like sleeping with people or lying to them. And I was just like, who do you think we are at Vanity Fair? Um, <laughs> a bunch of nerds. We're not doing that, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Any other emails that you want to take a crack at, Richard? Um, I don't have any in front of me, but I think, do you have a couple maybe? I do have a couple. Um, all right. So this one comes from Lisa and she says, hello, still watching Friends. What are the chances that my BF, uh, Dan Stevens, will appear in the Marvel Universe? Aren't Legion and Scarlet Witch first cousins? That being said, I haven't uh, gone further into Legion past the FX series, so I'm not sure where he goes beyond that. But it seems like those two would have one hell of a battle. By the way, I found that the House of M Ultimate Edition is free on Kindle if you have Amazon Prime. Love from across the YOLO causeway, Lisa. Um, All right. So uh, Dan Stevens in Legion. Richard, you watched like season one of Legion, right? I watched a few episodes, mostly for Gene Smart. (laughs) Um, You know, Legion ran for three seasons on FX and then was sort of part of one of the victims of this like shutting down all these extraneous Marvel TV shows to sort of coalesce them under the Disney plus banner and, and the Kevin Feige auspices. So, um, so, and what is true is that Kevin Feige is bringing some, seems like he's bringing some characters from like at least some of the Netflix shows into his TV universe in a way that makes them feel connected. I'm not sure he will extend that favor to Legion. Um, when you know the interview that we ran with Kevin Feige last week on the podcast, he said that this idea of mutants, because Legion, the titular character that Dan Stevens plays in Legion, is a uh, is a mutant. This idea of mutants is something that they're looking they're looking to use going forward, but not necessarily going backwards. So I don't know that they're going to absorb other mutants that they've explored uh, into this universe. But um, I don't know. It would it it, it would be. Fun. I mean, like. More Dan Stevens, yes, always, right, Richard? Yeah, yeah, and maybe they could be kissing cousins, you know. Ooh. I don't know. <laughs> it's all crazy. The rules there. Uh, well, I mean, it's just crazy. How, like, it's really wild. Yeah. Like how um, my boyfriend plays um, this phone game called Marvel Contest of Champions. I think it's called. And like, there's just there are so many characters and sometimes I'll look over his shoulder while he's playing and I'm like, okay, now who's that? And how do they relate to this? And are they Avengers? Are they X-Men? But, but they're all, you know, of course, under the same big umbrella. Um, so you really could go a lot of different directions, but I think, yes, like you said, introducing the concept of mutants into this other, you know, sort of track in the, in the Marvel lore, um, actually I think might be like trickier than it sounds initially. I think it's definitely something they're going to do. Some people theorize this is even something this show might do because, um, you know, maybe because I will just say famously uh, that emailer mentioned the comic book House of M, which, you know, most folks 
understand is an inspiration for this uh, season of television. In that comic book, mutants do exist. Um, but Wanda in that comic book actually gets rid of them. There's there's a very famous panel from that comic where she where Wanda says no more mutants and gets rid of mutants, um, most of them anyway. Um, Does she say it to the tune of Mary J. Blige's No More Drama? Um, absolutely, that's how I read it every time. Okay, <laughs> um, but she, uh, you know, so there's some theories that maybe uh, this will end with like what? Yes, more mutants. I don't know, like some opposite of that, where where she will somehow create mutants in this world. There's going to be have to be some kind of event. For for the MCU, which has all this continuity to introduce mutants now, when they couldn't legally have them before uh, because of the cop the the rights issues with Fox, there's going to be some kind of event, and you know you better believe that they they are trying to figure out how to best execute that. Uh, whether it's like a you know Wanda with all of her powers does something, or uh, you know there's an alternate universe. Mutants. Anything's possible. The comic book, you know, uh, we could we could have a vanity a TV show about a Vanity Fair reporter, and and you never know. Um, and we should. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this last email comes from Amanda, and it deals directly some with some of our questions, probably based to this episode. So I think it'll be a good way segue into us talking about specifically episode three. Um, uh, Amanda says, I'm coming to WandaVision with very little MCU knowledge, only having seen a movie here and there, mostly on plane rides. Remember those? Weirdly, one of the four of the movies I've seen in the MCU is Avengers Age of Ultron, so I vaguely remember Scarlet Witch and Jarvis slash Vision. I do have a couple thoughts that I want to share and see your take on them. Number one, in the first episode, when Agnes introduces herself, she says something about moving in so quickly, which could be taken as Wanda magically unpacked. But I think it could also be that Wanda and Vision were dropped into this place. Number two, at the dinner with the boss in the first episode, Mr. and Mrs. Hart seemed to be trying to make small talk. They asked where they came from and why they're there, which leads into the alternate th- reality theory. But I don't think it's necessarily created by Scarlet Witch because she has no answers, which number three, another thing that makes me think they are in a reality not created by Scarlet Witch is we get to see Vision without Wanda, like at work or the neighborhood watch meeting. I understand wanting to give the show more texture with giving Vision scenes without Wanda. Wanda, but I think if it was only in her mind, there would be less Vision backstory. Also, Wanda didn't know what the heart on the calendar was, and it was Vision that figured it out while at work without her. She also didn't know what happened to him with the gum at the talent show, which again, why would she not know what was happening? Anyway, thank you for everything that you do, and I love hearing about all these shows. Um, So yeah, so there's this question... We touched on it a little bit last week, but I think it's even safer to talk about more plainly with episode three of like... This is some sort of bubble-created reality, Mm -hmm. right? Because we see Geraldine get kicked out of it. Yeah. Who is creating it? Who is controlling it? What's your perception so far, Richard? Well, I think that that kind of leads to, like, my big question for you about this episode in particular. I mean, we've seen this symbol before this kind of upside down sword right yeah on the hell little toy helicopter and then we see it on a necklace that geraldine is wearing which is really when wanda kind of turns on her and yes. it's like what who are you or what you know like um so my question about that is is that a symbol of some sort of organization like something hydra adjacent or i don't know what um or 
Is it some kind of talisman to like protect people? But why would it be on a toy helicopter right now? So I think that Wanda's suspicion about it would lead me to believe that it represents an outside force that is controlling things versus it being interior to her. Yeah, so I think there's a couple options. These are great questions. Um, the symbol belongs to an organization uh, that is known to Marvel comic book readers. Um, it is called SWORD. So, like, you might be familiar with SHIELD, like Agents of SHIELD. Mm. That's that's an acronym. This is uh, SWORD. SWORD, historically, is not an evil organization. So it's not like a Hydra-adjacent thing. But, you know, the MCU likes to mess with things, so you never know. Um, but we've seen it, yeah, on that helicopter, on the necklace, on the back of the beekeeper guy, like we've seen it around. And so it does seem to sort of trigger something in Wanda and she ejects, forcibly ejects, uh, this person who is, is, is wearing that symbol. Um, it also and we saw, triggers yeah, for me ahead. the kind of fun, like kind of spine tingle thing of the dharma symbol or the the sw- yeah. was a swan right wasn't it in, yeah. in lost um lost, just yeah. as kind of like um a sort of visual mystery a, a sort of you know sort of or pattern um i think i think is kind of fun and harkens very closely to that show one fun theory that i really like that yeah, so so sword um when we see at the end of episode one like the sword logo on whoever is like watching you know we saw we saw that like pull back into a monitor that was like watching the show <laughs> that wanda and vision were creating here i assumed that was um, ed harris in a in a <laughs> in the moon in like a beret or whatever his hat was in that <laughs> yeah uh wearing a beret in the moon um but the sword logo was there so whoever's watching her is sword uh you know um I think well, the 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 best theory that I know of is that so there's this bubble reality. Wanda is in some kind of control over it, uh, right? She's able to sort of like re rewind things, sort of reset things with Vision when he starts asking too many questions. Yes, right. She has some kind of control over it, and she seems invested in keeping it fun and light and sitcommy. Right? Like, she wants this fantasy to keep going. She ejects uh, Geraldine for bringing in, intruding with the reality of, like, oh, your brother was killed by Ultron and stuff like that. Right? right? She rejects right. that. Um, one fun theory I've seen is that uh, the helicopter, so that the helicopter that, that we see in. Okay, so let's say, <laughs> let's say Wanda has created this reality, uh, or, or she is running this reality now. Uh, and she, things from the outside world that come in and intrude, she has to remake them so that they fit into the reality. So let's say that toy helicopter was actually like a real helicopter, but she turned it into a toy so that it would fit in this like little neighborhood, right? Or let's say the beekeeper was actually like some guy in a hazmat suit and she just sort of like reinterpreted it in a way that would fit this reality. Or let's say that Geraldine uh is an agent of sword who comes in and 
she sort of like loses her memory a bit as she's in, you know, like you get, you get sort of warped into the reality once you're there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So an idea that I think is interesting is like the helicopter crashes or, or intrudes into this reality between episode one, and episode two. And in episode two, we get a bunch of new characters, including Geraldine and several other new neighbors, Emma Caulfield from Buffy, et cetera. So one fun theory is that they actually like arrived on the helicopter uh, and maybe they're all working for S.W.O.R.D. And they're trying to get Wanda out of there. Uh, or they're doing it to her. You know? they're Are they the villains or are they the heroes? It's unclear. Do you know? Well, right. And I think that, you know, we've... We've seen things like movies and shows in the past that have been sort of like set in like a kind of like mind palace and like the, 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 the owner of it, you know, the, the possessor of the mind is like, um, really intent on not, you know, losing the, the fantasy or whatever. And I right. think that like there would be a good or an understandable kind of, you know, psychological reason for Wanda to do that because this is where vision is alive still. Right. Right. And so she could be very protective over that, even though it is really synthetic and creepy things are happening, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I almost wonder, I mean, it's interesting that the Legion question came up um, because, you know, we have, there are like X-Men like Jean Grey and other ones who have uh, telepathic abilities and sometimes it becomes like too much. Like they get lost in a kind of like... Right. You know, fugue state or something, um, because of their, their sort of powers. And I wonder, like, maybe that, maybe Wanda kind of dangerously created this thing and it's harmful to her as well as other people potentially. So, um, but still the kind of inner want, the id or whatever it is, um, is clinging onto it, uh, while her kind of more empathic, uh, intellectual side, uh, would probably, you know, do otherwise. Right, right. No, I think that's, uh, there are a lot of parallels in other uh, shows and films where we've seen a similar thing. And I think that's a really good point. I think to Amanda's point of maybe Wanda isn't the original architect of this bubble is interesting. And that's another fun theory that's floating around, which is like, she's controlling the bubble in a certain way now because she's so powerful. But maybe it was created by someone else originally and she she walked into it to try to stop it or, or rescue that person or whatever. And then she got sucked into it and then becomes the architect of it in her own way because she's so powerful. But this idea that it existed before her, like she arrives in the neighborhood, Catherine Hahn's character is already there. And a lot of people think maybe that character the um the Agnes character is actually you know because the, there's that weird scene with the neighbor where he's like trimming the hedge mm-hmm. and he's and and she's sort of like isn't it interesting that Geraldine doesn't have a home what's going on there and then he starts to say something and she sort of shuts him up and so like you know there's a lot of imagery there's a lot of witchy imagery around Catherine Hahn's character Agnes so there's this like there's this idea that she is cre- she is the original creator of the bubble Let's say Wanda wandered in, Wanda wandered, Wanda, Wanda went in as an Avenger, as a superhero, went in to try to like stop it, whatever it was, if it's a threat of some kind, and then got absorbed into it. Right. The way that all these other characters are getting absorbed into it. Kind of know? like that Black Mirror episode where it's, where it's like fake Star Trek with Jesse Plemons. Yes. Where, yeah, where yeah, they exactly. have to kind of play along because the person who has control over the world is very dangerous. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think also if we're thinking about the Marvel film continuity, I mean, we are because we talked about Vision being dead. 
Yeah. You know, when 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 Wanda was first introduced, she was powerful, but she wasn't like Captain Marvel level, you know, like galactic being kind of thing. But then in the end in Endgame, when she kind of goes makes her, you know, kind of uh, attack on Thanos on her own, it seems like she's kind of leveled up maybe several levels. Um, and so I wonder if that's kind of like part of this. It's like, it's, it's not a dark Phoenix narrative exactly, but it's, it's, um, with great power comes a kind of unwieldy, uh, you know, control over it. And, um, and, and maybe that's what we're seeing is that she kind of opened a door of some sorts within her abilities. And now it's like kind of all spilling out. I do think I do think we're looking at a leveling up for sure. And like the the last thing that that is so central to this episode that I want to mention is this idea of like children. Uh which mm. is kind of interesting because you know obviously she's having this like magical pregnancy you know, it fits into the wacky sitcom plot of her going into labor, her her powers going all haywire because she's going into labor, etc. Uh, she gives birth to these twins and, and, and that happens in the comics as well, that Wanda has a pair of twin boys, uh, Billy and Tommy, um, and, uh, you know, with Vision, etc. Um, but, but when you couple that with what happens in episode two... Uh, you, you'll notice <laughs> episode two is all about this like talent show that they're putting on, right? The, this fundraiser. And they keep saying like for the children, right? In this creepy sort of hot fuzz, like for the greater good kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. For the children, for the children. They keep saying it. But what's interesting about episodes one and two, you never see any children. <laughs> there are no children. They keep right. saying for the children and there are no children. Like where are all the children that they're talking about? And then here in episode three, Wanda gives birth to a couple babies. And so, uh, you know, a question, a theory that doesn't necessarily have a direct answer in the comic books is like, does someone need Wanda to have those babies? And is that why she's having those babies? Is this a rose, a, a slightly Rosemary's baby sort of situation? Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that makes yeah. sense. And I, I, yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I know that something that a lot of, so, or some watchers of the films took issue with was uh, like the the narrative about Natasha Romanoff, like Black Widows. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, sort yeah. of, what was it, like a forced hysterectomy or something? And so she said, right. I can't have children. And people thought, well, that's kind of reductive to like, of course, the woman's pain has to do with childbirth. And, and you know, so maybe this is a, a different way of handling that topic um, in a more complex way. Uh, yeah. So maybe not. Not if not. They're not trying to fix anything. I mean, who knows how they'll address it in the Black Widow movie? But you know, again, they were written by the same person. Yeah, that's true. Um. So you know, all all of that being sort of like what may or may not be going on. Who you know who who is the original architect of this thing? Is it Catherine Hahn's character? Is Catherine Hahn's character also trapped there? Uh, you know, who's in control? Why are, why are the twins there, etc.? Like these these are all the like mystery speculation stuff that's going on. What about this like 70s Brady Bunch Partridge family pastiche uh, of an episode? Does does this uh does this work for you as on that level, Richard? Oh yeah, they nailed the color palette. And yeah. and not yeah. just the the set design and the costumes, but the the like the the film stock or something. I mean, it's probably it's not shot on film or anything, but like, you know, the 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 way that the the filming interacts with those colors and sort of filters them, I thought was like, like with those really like deep browns and the kind of greens, like it just, it just really worked. I thought, um, you know, I think it, I think this is where 
of the three episodes, they divert. It was more kind of referenced by like several shows versus one particular one. Like I think the house was definitely Brady Bunch, but I think there were other, I mean, you mentioned Partridge Family. There were other influences where the first episode was, you know, depending on how you read it, either exactly Dick Van Dyke or exactly I love Lucy or maybe more of a mix, but like the, the episode two is definitely bewitched, you know? Um, so I, I thought it was interesting. Well, I guess maybe there was I Dream of Jeannie in there, too. I should be fair. So I guess... I think, I think like, there's usually, like, one living room we're looking at. Do you know what I mean? Yes, Which gives us, right. a, like, you know, so this is the Brady Bunch. Right. It's not quite the Brady Bunch living room, but the way the staircase is and the stone wall, like, that's a Brady Bunch living room. But yeah, we're, we're like, living in a sort of Partridge Family kind of 70s wacky kind of world. Like, the opening credits feel more Partridge Family than uh, Brady Bunch to me. Well, so, no, there was no yeah. Partridge. There was a stork though <laughs> yeah there was uh yeah so and and i loved like you know one last thing i want to say about like the episode as an episode rather than like our comic book theories is is um tiana paris who plays geraldine in universe um most people know this at this point that i mean i think it's fair to say now that she's been booted out i think i can say that she's playing Monica Rambeau, who's Maria Maria Rambeau, who's, who's Carol Danvers's like best friend in the Captain Marvel movie, and Monica Rambeau was like her daughter, who's in that movie. This is her daughter grown up. This is Monica Rambeau. That's in like all the promos, so I'm not spoiling yeah, anything by like saying that. But like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So she's Monica Rambeau. So what I thought was really fun is in this scene where she's talking about like her job and like, you know, they're doing all that sort of wacky physical comedy with the stork wandering around. Uh, Tiana Paris is doing this like interesting code switching thing, right? Between this like groovy black best friend, seventies neighbor type of character. And then her voice changes completely when she starts talking about like Ultron and, and Wanda's brother, Quicksilver, uh, who you guys may or may not remember was played by Aaron Taylor Johnson in Avengers Age of Ultron and was killed in that movie. And so she's referencing that. So that like that, that persona that she drops. And I think Catherine Hahn does a similar kind of drop in this episode. So it's sort of fun to watch these very talented actresses uh, play those levels, you know? Yeah. And I think it also, you know, um, brought in some interesting thematic stuff to think about in terms of race. You know, if this is, if the, the, the most direct lift that this show is doing, uh, this episode is doing is from the Brady Bunch. Like it were, it was really rare to see anyone of color on that show, especially right. in that living room. You know, um, I think there was, you know, there was an episode with, I think it was Desi Arnaz Jr. or someone or f- f- the elder Freddie Prince or, you know, um, you know, they, they had, they occasionally had people of color on, on the radio bunch, but not normally. But of course, during the seventies, there was, you know, all in the family, which led to the Jeffersons. Like, like there was that whole other tradition of 1970s Norman Lear kind of show that um, obviously they're bringing into bear here. And yet then she's immediately cast out of this, um, you know, very white yeah. kind of yeah. tr- setting. So I thought that was an interesting commentary. And Tiana Paris is just like such a good, compelling actor. And um, so it's good. really it was really, really fun watching her in, in that 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 long scene. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say about this episode uh, in particular? Um. No, I guess not. I mean, I, I, I really am. This is the episode, you know, because we saw this um, uh, earlier because I had to review it. And, and um, 
uh, this was the one that kind of really hooked me because, you know, I think something I was complaining about in the, about the first two episodes, much like, um, Sarah said in her email that like, okay, like, let's get to the point, you know, and, and I think this, um, really did a good job of marrying the, the kind of homage satire of old television with the mystery stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I can't, I'm excited to see more. I guess we should probably give a programming note, right? About when these episodes are going to start airing going going forward yeah so this is going to drop a little later than it did the first time on 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 friday but we still got to see this episode in advance we will not be able to see any of the upcoming episodes in advance episode four on we will be getting the same time the rest of you will which is like i think midnight on on a thursday night so the earliest we'll be able to record is on a friday so um you know we don't want to put our producer dave uh under under the gun to you know jam these out on a on a work day uh where he has another job etc so you know the best case scenario these are going to drop on friday afternoons they might drop over the weekend though uh we don't know uh we'll, we will do our best to get them to you in a timely manner um but that is the constraint we're working under so that's that's the that's the schedule going forward uh yeah, yeah. and i'll just add before you uh, i throw it over to you and uh, anthony um or actually guess the interview but uh is that there is actually another spoiler on the wandavision uh imdb page so if you don't oh. want to be further spoiled don't look at it um just just a word of warning. Oh, I don't even know what you're talking well, about. Well, okay. it's not it's a mild spoiler. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, let us go first to our interview with uh, director Matt Shackman. Uh, and then we will be coming back with Anthony Bresgan. And Richard, we will see you next week. Bye. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone. I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone, is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy <laughs> he just nailed the shit out of that. Sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to like be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring instead of have you saved up enough shouldn't they be asking what is it that you love to do and how can we help you keep doing it the truth is you are not slowing down so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan a hiking plan a music plan a sailing plan the point is whatever you're passionate about we can help make sure you never stop at lincoln financial we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. 
With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I wanted to start by asking you, um, you mentioned that, you know, you took a couple, there was a couple months off, uh, Corona-induced between the first stage of filming and the last. And um, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned that there are some things you realized that you wanted to do maybe differently or most importantly, when you got back, can you, in a spoiler-free way, can you talk about sort of the most important revelation of that, that time off gave you? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we did uh, shut down. Uh, We shut down at a very interesting moment though, because we had just wrapped in Atlanta and we were starting pre-production for our LA shoot. So it worked out well in that we were not in the middle um, and we had to sort of stop um, in the middle of filming, we were actually at a pause point. And then we, so we jumped into post-production and we were able to polish up everything that we had shot already. And because it's such a giant um, project, you know, you can never fully, fully, fully prep everything as a director before you start shooting and you're kind of doing this rolling prep. So as we worked on post-production, I was able to storyboard and do previs and figure out sort of on a more detailed level, some of the things that I had upcoming. So that was really useful as a director, but narratively it was pretty much locked in, you know, this is a real puzzle box and we had worked out our elements there. Um, and, you know, we had shot bits and pieces of all the episodes already. So it wasn't like we were going one at a time anyway. Um, so, um, it was mostly just a, an opportunity to jump into post-production earlier than we would have. And it's been a bit schizophrenic as a director, because usually you kind of, you prep, you shoot, you edit, you finish, you hand it off. And in this particular case, it's sort of an all stages of the, of the process at once. So it's scoring and it's VFX and it's, I'm also shooting, wait a minute. And I'm also editing. And so, but that's, it's been fun too, because the whole show is by its nature schizophrenic anyway. It's so many different eras and styles that, that why not? And then uh, I was just talking to Kevin and he said one of his favorite things that you did um, to sort of have fun with the era switches uh, were the aspect ratio changes. And um, I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about that idea when that came to you and sort of what, um, if there's anything beyond era switches that we should be looking out for in terms of those aspect ratio changes. We play a lot with form and style in the show. And that's one of the fun things about it. Like form is a, playing with form becomes a kind of narrative in the show in a way. And it tells you something about the story. Um, I don't want to say anything more than that, except uh we always wanted to be authentic. And so when we were going to do a fifties era sitcom, it had to be four by three. And that was one of the early questions was, you know, just making sure that Disney plus with this wonderful new streaming service that they wouldn't be surprised when I delivered um, this Marvel show in four by three, you know, this old fashioned box uh, format and everyone was excited about it. So we were able to roll forward with that. Um, But also, um, you know, this has always been described as a, a mix of of classic sitcom and large scale Marvel action and large scale Marvel action is usually in what we call two, three, nine widescreen, you know. Um, so, you know, you can do the math and sort of figure out um, that uh, where those opportunities might lie. But um, I have really enjoyed playing around with 
different lenses, period lenses, period lighting, different styles of filmmaking, um, doing things in front of a live audience on a set that's designed for that, you know, kind of open like a stage set and also then jumping to uh, a show that would have been done four walls with a single camera and lots of effects on wires and rods and things. This show has been a real journey through kind of every different filmmaking technique you could possibly imagine. I want to ask you about those uh, those fun old fashioned effects that you use in some of the early episodes. Was there ever was there any particular effect that was so tricky to pull off with the, with the rods and the wires that you were like, why can't we do this digitally? It would be so much easier if we could. We definitely had those conversations, but you know we couldn't take the easy road. I mean, this this show um, is all about that authenticity and creating that world, and I think there is a real tension that comes between a modern looking effect in those eras and the sort of bewitched I dream of genie style effects. And the tension between those two things is really a part of the story and a part of the storytelling as well. So, I mean, I remember very vividly, like it was yesterday, sitting down with Dan Sudik, who's a special effects coordinator, um, uh, who's done all of the big Marvel movies and nominated for many Oscars, an amazing guy who can blow anything up and build spaceships and whatever. And sort of sheepishly sort of getting my courage up to be like, Dan, I think most of the time, at least for a good chunk of the game, I want to just do old fashioned wires and rods and expecting him to kind of laugh me out of the room. And he just got so excited. And he told me that he came up under the guys who did Bewitched and I Dream of Genie. And early in his career, he had done that kind of stuff. And it was, it was like, you know, finding an old lost musical instrument and dusting it off and figuring out how do we play this thing? And, you know, getting these wonderful special effects uh, technicians up into the rafters and hiding under kitchen islands and, and making this magic happen. And I think all of us who think, of course, that we, we do all these fancy, new, sophisticated filmmaking techniques. You look back on the 50s and 60s, 60s and go, oh, that was all so simple then. You know, all of us were like, Those, they were good. <laughs> that was hard. You know, and it was true of the actors too. You know, Lizzie having to like freeze and oppose and and then we would have to like put stand under stands under her arms and her stand and would stand in front. They would like mirror each other. And then Lizzie would run off and do a quick change and like, run back and like match your standing <laughs> the rods away and action, you know, to create those quick changes and things. And it, it's hard, it's hard, but it's, it's charming, you know, and it's, yeah. it, you don't do it the way they did it. You can't really make it feel like the way they did it. You know? One of my favorite things about this sort of new cycle around this show is, is people talking about your personal uh, work uh, as an actor, as a young child actor on sitcoms. I loved just the ton of us as a kid, oh. honestly. Um, but um um, but you've also gone on to direct a bunch of modern, you know, comedies, uh, a million episodes of It's Always Sunny. Is there anything you had to unlearn sort of comedy technique wise when trying to direct these earlier era comedies? It's interesting. You're definitely right that, you know, when I was uh, working on sitcoms, um, uh, there, there certainly is a there's a rhythm to it. You know, you, 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 Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, rehearsal, Thursday, camera blocking, Friday, tape day. Um, and that was the rhythm of my life as a kid, you know? And so when we started to started WandaVision with that, we started with a live audience for the first episode. It really felt familiar. It felt like for the first time in many years, you know, since I was a kiddo, I was back in that rhythm again, you know, rehearsing, getting ready and doing it and putting on the show. And it brought back a lot of fond memories. It was great. Um, but I do direct a lot of theater and there's something very similar to that, like putting on a show and how an audience affects a performance. Um, so 
that's why we did that first show in front of an audience is this to have that energy that those shows in the fifties, like I love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke had when they had an audience there. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, every style is different. Comedy changes, comedy changes. I don't know. It, it's like a snake shedding its skin. It's amazing how, um, you know, Will Ferrell movies, you know, a certain kind of Will Ferrell movie, like, you know, worked really well, 10 years ago, maybe doesn't work as well right now, but it worked great in five years from now. Or, you know, Dick Van Dyke and Jim Carrey, like very similar physical comedians. And yet there's a big gap in that middle, you know, um, where different kinds of comedy come come and go. So we tried to study and kind of figure out sort of what did each, what was the the sort of approach to comedy in each era? What was the approach to acting? And, and you know, what was naturalism? What was, you know, what was comedy? These were the questions we were kind of asking ourselves as we went. Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite things uh, that I heard Lizzie say was that um, it was, you know, this this interview will go with episode three. And episode three is the one where she said you had to like, the first time you had to tell her to dial it back because she was like a little, a little too Lucy or something like that in her, in her episode. So. Yeah, that's funny. I do remember that moment where I went in there. I was like, I think we're going to do big here. That they were, her and Paul were both like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. They were, we had so much fun. And we did play with levels the whole time because that's a big part of, of getting a tone like that is making sure that you do have options and that you, you try the more grounded option. You try the really silly option because you're not really sure ultimately when you start to put the whole thing together you know, how you want to modulate it. And yeah. though those two especially are wonderful at that and they're so hardworking, they plan so much, they're so prepared and they're really game to sort of try lots of different things. Yeah. I imagine it would be really hard to, you know, I, I also grew up watching a lot of Nick at night. I, I watched the Dick Van Dyke show. I watched all of that. Um, and it's amazing to me how you capture the tone without, you know, smothering in irony or or you know sneering at it any kind of way just feels like a a love letter like genuinely engaging with what the tone was at the time so that was definitely the goal yeah Yeah. we we didn't want to move into parody or spoof at all this is the reality of that episode the reality for those characters and that this is what we're living yeah um, so, you know, this is, this is a Marvel property. So of course you've got the sort of eagle-eyed, well-studied nerds already pouring over screenshots from trailers and stuff like that. They've already spotted a wine bottle Easter egg, potential wine bottle Easter egg in the first episode. I'm wondering, is this the kind of show where we should be watching in every corner for clues and hints and details, uh, and, and keeping our like conspiracy theory yarn wall going, uh, the whole time we're watching it? Gotcha. Well, you know, uh, the show is a mystery and a bit of a a thriller and there's a puzzle to it, of course. And so um, information that helps inform the solution to that puzzle is certainly um, in the show. But, you know, I would never want to say look super carefully or don't look at all. You know, hopefully the show stands on its own and, um, and the experience of it will be satisfying as it goes and when it wraps up. So meet it at the level that you want to meet it. And it can be rewarding if you're just casually watching it. And if you're uh, a weirdo like me, you can watch every frame. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you, you know, you, you talked about this already about like sort of the idea of comedy, like a snake shedding its skin. I really like that idea. I, I'm fascinated thinking about the evolution of like, you know, because these are family sitcom genres that you're exploring, the evolution of like the sitcom wife or the sitcom existence and thinking about like these early episodes and how they're all about like hiding who you are and hiding your truth and 
fear of being discovery and wanting to fit in and conform. And then you've got later stuff, you know, we already know that Roseanne is going to be uh, an homage later on. And Roseanne is such a like, uh, you know, screw your screw your notion of what of what family uh, is supposed to be. This is this is our real family here. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about like that that specific way in which the family sitcom evolved over the decades. It's a great question. We we did focus on family sitcoms because this is a love story, and this is about two people who you know are creating a family for each other. They've both been. They've both been lonely with vision is, an, is one of a kind, you know, he's on his own and Wanda has, you know, lost so much and they come together and they, they create this unit. And so that is what, um, you know, that's why we looked at, at those uh, amazing sitcoms throughout time that, that still resonate today. The ones that, that like, I love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke all the way up to today, the ones that really feel like they're, they're meant to last and that, and that they're timeless. Um, all of them have something similar to them, which I love, which is that there's always a problem. Um, and it's whatever the crisis of the, the episode happens to be, but it's always a problem that you can solve if you work together as a family, you know? Um, and those, those kinds of, you know, shenanigans and the sort of sitcom uh, level of, of crisis and chaos is, is a wonderful one because it means that, you know, no problem is insurmountable, you know, and no problem cannot be fixed if we work together. I love that answer. But at the same time, I feel like the show also has this, um, you know, this almost eerie David Lynchian Twin Peaksy, like the menace below, you know, the suburbs sort of vibe to it that like, it seems like you've solved the problem in a half an hour, but there's a bigger problem or bigger threat sort of lurking. Um, why, you know, this is my last question to you, like sort of why, why was that something that was interesting for you to explore right now? It's true. I mean, the, the, I would go back to what I said about it being a bit of a puzzle box. I mean, obviously there is a, intentionality to um, how we've structured the show and the worlds that we're occupying. And, um, and that will be sort of revealed as you watch it, you know? Um, But yes, nothing is what it seems. Right. And, um, and things can move quickly from Dick Van Dyke to Twilight Zone. Um, And it's all a part of this question that Wanda and Vision are asking themselves, which is, you know, what's going on here and, and, and where exactly are we? Where are we? When are we? Perfect. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. All 
All right. Hello and welcome to part two, part three, however you, you care to break these episodes down. This is the section of the podcast where uh, my pal Anthony Breskin is here. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Joe. We're in the bubble. <laughs> or are we outside the bubble? I think we're in the bubble, man. All right. We're in the bubble. <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, the first three episodes of WandaVision, like sort of as a whole through the lens of comic book knowledge. So while we will not be spoiling anything from any future episodes, because we have not seen them, uh, we will be talking about a lot of comic book stuff that helps us understand and unpack. I feel like I really have a much better grasp on what's going on after this week's episode uh, than I did after the first two, and a lot of good comic book stuff to dive into. We're going to talk about animals. We're going to talk about twins. We're going to talk about Wonder Man. We've got all kinds of stuff to talk about. And um, Bubble baths. <laughs> and bubble baths. Yeah. So let's start, uh, let's start by looking back at, at something, you know, uh, it, uh, I think it's fair to say that Anthony and I were both a little embarrassed by having a lack of a theory mm. on the, uh, commercials that we see in the first two episodes and we see a third one in this episode. We've got the toaster commercial, the, uh, the watch commercial, and then this week we got the, uh, the hydra soap commercial. So Anthony's going to talk about that third commercial, but first I want to, we got a lot of emails and tweets and all kinds of stuff from you guys about uh, the commercials. So let me just read one really quickly. This comes we, from... We, we dropped yeah. the ball. Joe and I were texting like, how did we miss this? I know. How? We like, I think mortified. in our defense, in our defense <laughs> I think we were focused on the episode so much that the commercials felt like we didn't have a lot to go on. And I think, you know, that uh, wasn't our primary focus, but we, we missed it. We t- totally dropped the ball. I'm still pretty mortified. So, so, yeah. uh, so this came from, uh, from a listener, Manu, who is actually a pal of mine. I known him from the Game of Thrones days. And he goes, he tweeted at me, he goes, Hey, Joe, sorry for, sorry to theory at you, but I read the toaster commercial and waiting for the toast to pop as Pietro's story about how he and Wanda waited in the rubble for the Stark missile to blow with the second commercial being the Strucker adjacent, uh, if I'm tracking, uh, commercials. Uh, are they're all going to tie to Wanda's origin story, or maybe the time of these events closer to Age of Ultron than we thought? And then Grant, another uh, listener from the uh, from the back from the Thrones era, says to me, the toaster commercial with Stark Industries, the watch commercial with Strucker. On one level, the commercials are about each of their origins, uh, like like uh, Wanda's origins, Vision's origin, trauma. The toaster, the bleeping red light on the toaster being the Stark bomb, I think is the is the sort of smartest, sharpest uh, analogy uh-huh. that people have uh, drawn. Do you have anything to add about those two commercials before we get to the third one, Anthony? I just think they're absolutely right. Yeah, and I feel like I felt like um, you know at the end of Scrooged when Bill Murray goes on TV and he. <laughs> And he speaks to his brother, you know, yeah. with the ghost of Christmas past, he had watched them playing like Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> and his brother had been trying to make him a better person all along, and he didn't listen. And then he's like, and you were right about everything, except the SS Minnow. <laughs> <laughs> the SS Minnow is the ship that took this, the castaways to Gilligan's Isle. No points this round. And the brother is like, how did he know we missed that one? Like, I feel like it was, you and I were both like, how did we miss this? How did they, how did they know and we didn't? It was really embarrassing. Uh, um, but, yeah. but, uh, I will say one, one thing that I have, uh, been told, I need to double check it. I might do it right now while we're talking, uh, is that there is a 666 on the side of the toaster. And we will get to why that might be. Uh, a little later on this episode. Before we get there, want to talk to me about this third commercial that we got in this episode, uh, Anthony? 
Yeah, it's a, it's basically a takeoff on the old Calgon take me away commercials where someone it, 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 you know washes away their stress with the uh, uh, the warmth and relaxation of a bubble bath. Only it's called what is it called Hydrolox or uh, I'm blanking on the exact name of it, but it's something with Hydra Hydra right. as the soap and uh, uh, it says something like Unleash the Goddess Within. Yeah, which is uh, which is a uh, a very deliberate phrase, I believe. And the goddess is a character from Marvel history. Not such deep history. It's from the 90s. Uh, I believe the character was invented by Jim Starlin. And uh, she was sort of the light side of a character called Adam Warlock. And here's where I'll say, um, I think this is a case where if they are going to draw something from this character it's an illusion not they're not going to follow the comics strictly uh they're going to maybe take an, a notion or an idea and weave it in because we haven't even met adam warlock in any of the uh marvel cinematic universe projects so far so i doubt that they're going to uh uh you know dive really deep into that and i think that's something to keep in mind as we theorize is that as as much as we love to like wonder about what's going on yeah. In the Marvel world, they usually keep it pretty close to the surface. Like, we can plunge into the depths of mythology and lore, and usually it's like, yeah, we took that name. <laughs> and, like, that's about it. Uh, but, um, yeah, the character Adam Warlock, he had his hands on the uh, Infinity Gauntlet, and he wanted to be a good ruler, somebody who ruled through logic and decency. And so he... Uh, he had his good, his, his sort of like softy side and his harsh side removed, and they split into two different enemies, one called the Magus and one called the Goddess, and the Goddess was the light and the Magus was the dark entity. And so... Oh, that's I think, interesting. I think maybe what they were going for here was perhaps a little wink. I, I, again, they're, I think they're drawing on what were the traumas that... Um, that uh, uh, that Wanda has experienced, and of course, with uh, with Hydra, she uh, she was battling against Hydra, and she uh, killed a bunch of people in a building. That was one of the things that led to the Sokovia Accords and the concern that superheroes were maybe more dangerous than they were worth. And so she, ever since that point, she had been trying to control herself and make herself make sure that she only used her powers for good and was more careful and cautious with them. So Unleash the Goddess Within, I think, is maybe just a little tip of the hat toward um, Wanda wanting to use her powers for good, yearning to use her powers for good. But having the potential to be very dangerous and yes. very dark. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The awareness, but also the awareness that even intending to do well, do good with her powers yeah. could have side effects that, uh, that are awful. That's so interesting. The other um, detail that some folks have noticed is that there's this exchange in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You might remember in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that Agent Coulson uh, had sort of his reality reconfigured with this like trip to Tahiti. Do you remember that at the beginning of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Right. Right. Um <laughs> And there's this exchange where he's talking to another character. He says, I would have figured it out a long time ago if it wasn't for the mind control soap. 
Uh, and the other character goes, wait, what? And he goes, the blue soap everyone uses? Hydra loads it up with chemicals. It seeps into our bloodstream and plants false memories into our brains. They want us to believe this is a magical place. But don't worry, I'm clear. I make my own soap now. Um, so this idea of like blue soap and its history, I'm not saying this is literally the same soap, but I am saying like its connection to like creating a false reality, like the commercial is very much about like creating an escapist fantasy to escape a nightmare. And, and like that is, we think, partially maybe what's going on with Wanda here. So I think it's working on a couple different levels there. Yeah, I I will confess I did not keep tabs on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So that's news to me. Good catch. Yeah, soap, soap, soap. All right. So uh, let us talk. Let's we're going to start with Agnes. Uh, is where we're going to start. We're going to have a whole journey. We're going to start with Agnes. Agnes is, uh, we talked about this in the first episode, but Agnes, we believe, is actually, and I think there's much more evidence in this episode, that she is uh, not just, you know, an innocent bystander here in the bubble, um, as indicated by some, like, furtive conversation she's having. Um but she might actually be a comic book character known as Agatha Harkness, who is a uh, a, a witch from uh, from the from the Salem times. Um, there's a couple extra um, clues. First of all, in this episode, uh, you might want to go back and look at what shoes she's wearing. She's wearing pilgrim shoes with like big silver buckles on them. So that's a fun, uh, you know, uh, you, one might have worn them in the 70s, but one might certainly also have worn them uh, in the 17th century. Um, people have also noticed that she mentions June 2nd as her uh, wedding uh, anniversary. That is the starting date of the Salem Witch Trials, June 2nd, 19, uh, 1692. So um, that is a fun little detail. There's also another detail in this episode where uh, you see in the opening credits, the movie theater is playing Oz the Great and Powerful, uh, a little a bit of anachronism to include a 2013 uh, film, right, on the, on the film, on the movie marquee. Mm-hmm. Oz the Great and Powerful is about battling witches, right? Uh, I think right. three battling witches. Um, so, uh, that is something to keep an eye on. We've already mentioned the pendant that she wears, uh, and how it matches the pendant, um, that Agatha Harkness wears in the comics. Um, it's got, uh, it seems to have the triple goddess motif, the crone, the mother maiden crone, uh, image on the, uh, so that's another sort of like wake the goddess within. Um, and then they seem to be talking about, um, she and the neighbor, a clo- according to the closed captions, seem to be talking about Wanda's tummy uh, in this episode, uh, which to me gives off some hardcore Rosemary's Baby stuff, which we will talk about uh, a little bit more. But how do you how do you feel about these? Oh, oh, and she's like riding her bike, like uh, like a classic uh, Wicked Witch of the West sort of uh, Wizard of Oz thing. So how do you how do you feel about all these like witchy clues gathering around the character of Agnes? I'm 100% yeah. convinced that she's Agatha Harkness. Yeah. My only question is, what is her allegiance? Yes. Um, but I'm, I think all of the things you mentioned, especially the pendant, uh, you know, and, and the dates and all of those things, there, there was also, um, a character named Ralph Hall who was, uh, among those tried during those. Oh, interesting. Uh, persecutions. And uh-huh. she's always cracking wise about her husband, Ralph. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if maybe that's coincidence, might be digging a little deep, but if they're, I think again, I think these are things that are meant to be little puzzles or little breadcrumbs, however you want to, whatever metaphor you, you prefer to help, uh, 
add a little extra flavor or interest to people who want to dive deeply, but also um, I think you don't need to know them in order to enjoy the show. Totally. So uh, I think these are just little things that are sprinkled throughout. I, but 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 the, what makes me wonder about her allegiance is there's the bizarre scene in this episode where the neighbor is using his hedge trimmers and then the hedge trimmers are cutting into the wall yeah. and throwing sparks. One, hedge trimmers can't do that. Take, it, take <laughs> uh-huh. it from a suburban dad who has cut his share of, of hedge trimmers. They'll uh-huh. cut through your uh, extension cord easy enough, but they will not <laughs> cut through a, a brick wall. And to me, as we find at the end of this episode, there's a bubble and there are sword agents trying to monitor it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe I'm jumping a, a little bit ahead here, no. Joanna, but uh, um, Geraldine, in quotes, finds herself ejected from the bubble. And uh, and that's where we get our first look beyond WandaVision um, at the sort of uh, uh, this place. We've seen it on the screen, but but this place where there's this this activity seems to be happening under the dome, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I think um, I think uh, yeah that this is uh, all it all all factors together in a in a way that's uh, that's meant to to lead us in a certain direction. You know, it's it's fun that. Um we're we're definitely gonna get to geraldine and the dome uh you're right and we're gonna dive into that but let's let's circle back to ralph her husband so, ralph so, so but do you think do you think i'm right that this this was them cutting into the bubble in some way like him trying to you know the the image that vision has of him cutting into the wall was some out some agent trying to either cut oh, in or cut um, out. i hadn't thought about that to me it seemed more like just like a glitch in the matrix sort of thing like oh, a okay. like a like a representation of something that's wrong uh, in this world, like typing, I'll work and no play makes it yeah. all boy. I thought, yeah. like, see, I I thought it was like maybe this is somebody trying to cut in. Oh, or maybe. Cut out. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't and thought he's about like, that. what are you doing? Because then later we see uh, Agnes talking to that person. Yeah, and the wall is stitched up, patched up. So is she vexing him, bedazzling him, and patching the hole herself, or is she in? collusion to use <laughs> right she, word, with the sword agent and like no no here's how we're gonna do this like it looked like she might have been glamoring him a little bit and of course every time they read yes. a mag magazine in this show it's it's glamoring magazine yeah she also does like you know she does like little little magic hand movements sometimes and mm-hmm. stuff like that it's unclear to me whether there's a couple possibilities number one agnes is invested in keeping the bubble status quo, which is sort of your implication here. Number two, she's invested in escaping the bubble. Number three, she needs to keep the bubble status quo for now for her long game to escape it. (laughs) Those are the three sort of possibilities I see. And I'm not a thousand percent sure I, I feel confident in any one direction. Because we're not okay, so we're not sure. Even if we accept that Agnes is Agatha Harkness and and a, a witch with witchy powers, we're not certain at this point who the who the like who the big bad of this season is. Is it Agnes? Is it Wanda herself who does some sort of you know some some controlling concerning things in this episode? Um. 
or is it a third party? And the third party is someone who I like dismissed last week, but I'm all in on it this week. So do you want to talk about Mephisto? Well, I'll, I'll let you. I, I feel like I went deep on this other one. You you hit me with Mephisto. Okay. So um, who created, who created this bubble is a big question. Is it, did Wanda create the bubble uh, in, in an attempt to keep vision alive or re re bring vision back from the dead? Did Wanda enter this bubble? We see Wanda and Vision driving into the bubble. Like, did they enter the bubble working with Sword or someone else to figure out what the bubble was and and how to? And did the bubble preexist? Was it Agnes's bubble? Was it Mephisto's bubble? Mephisto is a character from the comic books who is, uh, you know, essentially the devil. He's a devil-ish character, right? Mephistopheles, Mm -hmm. Mephisto, right? Yeah, take it from obviously Mephistopheles from the uh, the Faust right story right. So this idea, people, a lot of people have been suspecting that Mephisto would be involved because he is involved in a lot of Scarlet Witch stuff, especially as it pertains to her twin boys, which we will talk about in a little bit. Uh, so a lot of people have been, been expecting that Mephisto would show up here. I was just sort of like. I liked the idea of Wanda being her own worst enemy better than like uh the literal the devil is here, but hey, if the devil's here, that's fine. Um a lot of people have noticed that the uh, in the in the promo and in the episodes themselves, the sixes are missing from the clocks. Sixes are definitely missing from various dials and clocks uh in this universe. Um the there's some biblical imagery in this episode when Monica eats the apple. When she eats the apple, she gets sort of like expelled from the garden, sort of thing. Um, and uh, and so a lot of people think that Mephisto is actually the the heretofore unseen Ralph, uh, who you mentioned is possibly a, a fellow wit, uh, witch or something like that. Uh, how do you, how do you feel so far about what I've said? I, I think that's possible, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's going to go a lot further i i think like i i think agnes is being set up as sort of the main antagonist whether she's like a truly bad person uh or an entity or whatever she is or not but i think there is a ralph she's dropped name dropped ralph yeah many many times and ralph is a good sitcom name too right yeah i mentioned ralph hall who's he and his wife mary were put on trial in like 1665 um but it's also like ralph cramden you know ralph uh uh, it sounds like the curmudgeonly neighbor, you know, and um, I'm with you on Mephisto. Mephisto's, I mean, literally turn, looks like, he looks like the devil in the comics that you would see, uh, like, on a hot sauce bottle. Like, he's the, uh, he's pretty demonic. Uh, he's turned up in a few movies, uh, primarily the Ghost, Ghost Rider. Ghost yeah. Peter so. Fonda and Karen Hines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um. <laughs> well, I know, don't imagine that if Mephisto were to show up in this universe, he would look like the devil on the side of the hot sauce bottle. Actually, I have like a, there's a really fun theory about who might be playing Mephisto, but please, please continue. Is it Randall Park? It's, it's not. It's not. No. I kind of think he would be. A good Mephisto. He would. He would. He definitely would. But Partly th- because he has such a sunny personality. Like yeah. Such a, a, you know, aw shucks kind of boyishness about him. And I think that would be, uh, uh, that would be kind of fun. But there's a, um, yeah, so there's, there's a line from episode two 
where Wanda and Agnes' neighbor says, the devil's in the detail, and Agnes says, that's not the only place he is. And there's just like a bunch of lines like that. Like this week, she said, Ralph looks better in the dark, and all this sort of stuff like that, that just like makes people think that, you know, and, and like the unseen husband, the unseen spouse is a classic sitcom trope, right? Like Vera on Cheers or Maris on Frasier. Um, you know, like that, that is a thing that, that happens. Um, there's, you know, there was one on Will and Grace, Stanley, right? Stanley and Will and Grace, like, that's a thing. But, like, I, I like this idea of, like, he's unseen, uh, until there's gonna be, like, a big reveal on him. Um, <laughs> do you want, okay, before we get to, like, the who might be playing him, do you want to hear my new favorite theory that we've already seen, Mephisto slash Ralph? Okay. Um, in every episode so far, there's a significant animal. In episode one, there's like the lobster that gets thrown out the window and then winds up attached yes. to the front door. In episode two, we've got uh, the rabbit who's named yes. uh, Senor Scratchy. Old Scratch uh. is, of course, a name for uh. the devil who appears in episode two. And in episode three, of course, you've got this stork who is impervious to Wanda's magic uh running around the joint and in the comics Mephisto turns himself into animals. So what do you think about this idea that we've already seen Mephisto three times uh in the show? I think you're on to it. All I right. think you got it. I think definitely. In fact I'm more sold than ever on Mephisto. <laughs> okay. So but like my my whole theory okay, so let's get to your theory. I want to go back to Randall Park for a second. Yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not saying this is what I think. Okay. I just think this would be cool. Yeah. Because he has turned up before as an FBI agent. Yes. In uh, Ant-Man. Yes. And um, and I think one thing that Marvel does like to do is change, is give us, is reveal something about a character we've seen many times that gives us a new dimension on who that is. You know? Yeah. And so um, that's why I thought rather than have... Maybe he's a guy who's been, you know, in this guise for a long time, just sort of observing disruptions in yeah. the space-time continuum, and this is a platform for him to do that. Um, and I just think it would be cool to make that character, give that character a little more uh, dimension. I am always in favor of uh, Randall Park giving more to do. So mm-hmm. I I would not be um upset about that in the slightest. Um the the theory so there's there's a couple other like clues that we're working. This is like, you know, this is kicking off my like internet detective vibes like gathering quotes from various interviews. Um I spent some time on Reddit this morning, so I want to acknowledge like the animal thing did not come from me. Um I just really believe it. <laughs> I think it's true. I think Senior Scratchy is a real... uh, Senior Scratchy does it for me. Yeah, 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 I'm like, okay, old Scratch, yeah. Yeah. And then all the sixes, they're basically taking all the devil imagery. Yeah, and maybe they're Uh, just messing with us, which could be possible, but yeah. Um, Okay, so there's this big quote that Paul Bettany gave in an interview uh, before the season started where he says, I get to work with an actor that I've been wanting to work with forever who is just unbelievable. We have some real fireworks together. And elsewhere, I think he described that actor as legendary. So people, so, so there appears to be, you know, Mark Hamill-esque at the end of Mandalorian season two, some big actor who has not been announced that will appear in the show. Okay. So Mm. I had a brainwave. I was like, oh my God, what if it's Dick Van Dyke? They've talked about like taking Dick Van Dyke out to lunch. Like maybe they got Dick Van Dyke to like play, not like, not like he would do it for 
not like he would like then romp into the MC or whatever. Dick Van Dyke is an older gentleman. He's largely retired, but like maybe he could show up and, you know, Mephisto shapeshifts. So like maybe in one iteration, he's Dick Van Dyke and that could be really fun. And Paul Bettany would lose his mind, I think, uh, to play against Dick Van Dyke. But there's actually a better theory going around. He's 95 years old. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> there's a better okay. theory. There's a better theory than that going around. Um, and that is that it might be Brian Cranston. Um, Paul Bettany has mentioned Brian Cranston not in Breaking Bad, but in Malcolm in the Middle as an inspiration for his character. They've mentioned that one of the episodes is going to be, I thought the 90s episode was Roseanne, or the 90s episode may Roseanne, but the early, they've mentioned Malcolm in the Middle several times and uh, as an inspiration. Malcolm in the Middle is very Roseanne. Like, if you remember the original Roseanne show, it was like... It was like lower middle class family. Yeah, is that fair to say. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. not not even just like because so many sitcoms are like these people live in a fabulous house and you know they're clearly like the dad is on TV and the mom has some other you know right is a doctor and like right. it's just, just like that idea of like a family that really if they get a flat tire uh, we're gonna have to cancel HBO. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> to pay for that repair. Um, so I think, yeah, Malcolm and, and Roseanne are not that far apart, although maybe separated by uh, a couple decades. So the, uh, the Bobby and Kristen Lopez, who wrote all the theme songs, uh, you know, they wrote a different theme song for every episode pertaining to whatever sitcom there is being referenced, right? And they mentioned in an interview with Entertain- uh, your, your old colleague, my pal Devin Coggin at Entertainment Weekly that, um, that there was a guest star that made the some of the music they were writing particularly like meta so either a guest vocalist or a guest star on the show so perhaps brian cranston and they were looking at the malcolm in the middle like theme song as an inspiration that's possible. Um, but I love the idea of Brian Cranston. Like, imagine a winky twinkly Brian Cranston playing the devil. Like, come on. Well, what's great about that is, um, for so many years on Malcolm in the Middle, Brian Cranston was just like a total doofus. Yeah. Like, almost another one of the boys. Just a older version yes like but very childlike in many ways and then when he played walter white on breaking bad people were like i mean in a lot of ways was playing off that image right here's this sort of like like let's say loserish dad uh suburban dad right who gets some very bad news and then decides to uh uh to break bad to go to to go to the dark side and then like like, that's how it started with him and his whitey, kind of, I hate to call them whitey tighties because they weren't so tight. Like, they're sort of like baggy little boy underwear running around the desert, desperate. He became the devil incarnate as Walter White. Uh-huh. Like, he showed in many ways something we talk a lot about in our politics right now, which is like kind of ordinary, decent, run-of-the-mill people becoming hyper-charged with darkness with committing to like being having like the worst elements of their personalities that that are you know within all of us drawn out and metastasized and i think like brian cranston can play like comical doofus (laughs) and devil incarnate and that's quite a range so and i can also see him as being like uh, paired with um 
Catherine Hahn as a sitcom couple. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and so merging that in yeah. this sitcom world that is literally blending those two things, uh, I think is really genius. So let's hope that happens. Um, Chris Anderson, let me get the direct quote from Chris Anderson Lopez. She says, I can't spoil it, but there is a guest star on a decade that really brought a lot of authenticity. So, um, this, that might be completely unrelated, but, uh, you know, just something to think about. So anyway, I'm I, like, I have no evidence that it, that Brian Cranston is showing up as the devil on this show, guys. I'm just, I think it's a theory that I really, really like. Um, so let's get to the, the last reason why people, uh, are pretty convinced that Mephisto is involved uh, in this show. And that has to do with the twins, Billy and Tommy. What do you know about Scarlet Witch's twin boys? I know that in uh, House of M, they don't exist. Right. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I don't know much about them beyond that. So it got, it got, it's kind of complicated as comics often mm-hmm. are in terms of like creationing, cre- creating and retconning. Like, in uh when they first show up you know wanda has these babies with vision and i guess nobody asked too hard how it is that like an android was able to create some babies but she has these twin boys billy and tommy um and they're actually named for um named after the two uh things that were merged together to create vision um wonder man which we're going to talk about in a little bit and um i can't remember the other one but um and basically, she has these twin boys, and then later in the comics, it is revealed that those boys were not actually, like, real babies that she gave birth to, but that she created them out of shards of Mephisto, uh, of his soul. Think of them as sort of, like, horcruxes. Mm. <laughs> and uh, if you're if you're Potter-versed, if you're listening and you're Potter-versed, um, and later in the comics, he reabsorbs them into himself to like you know come to the full completion of his powers that's why that's why she's crumbling in house of m they don't exist like her her twins that were real to her are reabsorbed into this villainous devil figure and it's agnes who erases her mind to sort of uh or agatha harkness who erases her mind to sort of help her deal with the trauma of that and uh when she discovers that that happens she freaks out so um so this idea that, you know, there's, the, I talked to, to Richard about this a little bit in the first half, but didn't get into the Mephisto of it all. But in the first, in the second episode, there's that whole like for, repeated for the children, for the children, for the children thing that they're like, sort of doing this creepy hot fuzz uh, mm-hmm. mantra. <laughs> um, so what if, here's the theory. What if in this version of the story, Whoever created the bubble, let's say it's Agnes or let's say it's Mephisto, needs Wanda to create these two children uh, in order to, I don't know, escape or complete or do something. And so she's being used, even though she's somewhat in control of of certain things, she's being used like Rosemary's baby in order to create these soul shards that Mephisto needs. Question mark. Well, I think that's accurate. I think or I think it's very likely she has powers and abilities that I think a lot of these other figures we've been discussing really envy. Mm-hmm. And so she, I think she's being exploited by them. They've they're They're trying to use her to create what they need. And she has the power to, you know, the word multiverse has become a really, uh, it's become a popular trope now in comic book storytelling because it allows us to have 
various versions of the same characters and that please different fans. DC yeah. films is, and TV shows have really embraced this, right? We can have a Flash on TV and a Flash in the movies, and they're all valid. And we can have a Batman from 1989 who's in a movie with Ben Affleck's Batman. <laughs> and the Flash in DC is the one who breaks the physical barriers and and opens the doorways to these various worlds. And I think in Marvel, that character is uh, is Scarlet Witch. She's the one who's able to break down these barriers, mm-hmm. pull things from one dimension into another dimension. And while we're talking about all the casting of the upcoming Spider-Man film, including Andrew Garfield and perhaps introducing other versions of right. other Spider-Men, and we've seen Into the Spider-Verse, the fantastic animated film with the Miles Morales character encountering various other Spider-Men as well. I think uh, Scarlet Witch is the figure in the larger official MCU that could um, could do that here. And so naturally, uh, I don't know how that fits into like creating characters out of shards and all that. But I think if you have characters who are banished to other dimensions or are trapped in sort of an in-between place, a sort of liminal yeah. existence, that um, that this bubble and this show of WandaVision becomes a place, it becomes a, a, a fulcrum where yeah. the, the storytellers can really leverage in this idea of alternate dimensions. And it's something that Marvel likes to do. They introduce various types of worlds in stages. So we began with this, the world of science, right? Tony Stark. Captain America, who's created through Super Soldier Serum, the Hulk. And then we uh, extended to the cosmic realm with um, uh, with with Thor. And Doctor Strange opened the door to the ma- world of magic. And I think that world here that Doctor Strange opened the door to is the one we are fully into now with WandaVision, is this world of magic. Magic and being a kind of science. Which is why we're talking about witches and devils. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The other implication of the twins here, um, whether or not they get reabsorbed or go on, you know, like, uh, I can imagine that they're not going to stay babies given how quickly they, like, grew. Um, I imagine they're going to age pretty quickly in this uh, little pocket universe. Um uh, we should note that so so even though the twins get reabsorbed into Mephisto in the comics, they're then discovered elsewhere later. This is classic comic stuff, right? Like I think I think the fact that they were shards of Mephisto was a was like not, I don't want to say a retcon, but sort of like wasn't the initial plan. And then they're like, oh, what if they're shards of Mephisto? Cool, and he reabsorbs them, and she goes you know mad because of it and stuff like that. Um, and then. Um, and then this idea, then they find them later. So Wanda's two kids, uh, Billy and Tommy, are known as Wicked and Speed, and they are young Avengers. And the young, do you have any thoughts, Anthony, on how what we've seen from what Marvel has uh, introduced so far, how we might be leading up to like a young Avengers story in the Marvel universe? Well, Kate Bishop is one of the young Avengers as well. Right. We're going to be getting a, a Hawkeye series with that character played by Haley Steinfeld. So I know that's uh-huh. very likely to be a factor. I do think this is the kind of thing. Look, there are no Avengers currently because right. uh, Endgame kind of wrapped that up. Uh, I think we'll get young Avengers before we get, say, West Coast Avengers. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, which was a real thing for the comics. But I think. Um, uh, that that's a long game, 
Right, but I think it's just sort of like let's plant the seed here, right? Oh, I'm yeah. not saying it's happening immediately, but like it's sort of it's not just so there's Kate Bishop, which is Haley Stanfield in the um the Hawkeye show. They've recast Cassie Lang's got Lang's daughter, uh, with the actress Catherine Newton. Cassie Lang is one of the young Avengers. Uh and America Chavez, who's also been cast, um, is also one of the younger advisors and she's going to be um in in phase four so they're sprinkling in different projects right so they're sprinkling these young characters um in these various disney plus shows and films um you know per- potentially leading leading the path towards a young avengers team up project and i think it's a way to get people um you know, much the way that, like, you know, Tom Holland's Spider-Man has gotten, like, you know, energized the franchise, gotten a younger generation as equally interested in MCU as people who, like, grew up with um, Iron Man and, and Captain America, stuff like that. Like, you know, keep keep the franchise young and fresh and interesting um, is, I think, something that they're – it seems sure. like they're doing, you know, so – and uh, we should note that one of uh, Wanda's boys is canonically gay. So uh, it could be an opportunity for more gay representation in uh, in the MCU, which would be great. Overdue. Uh, all right. So, so that's like the Mephisto and the twins of it all. But like, obviously, another big thing that happens uh, in this episode is uh what happens with Geraldine. So I you know, I feel like I've been babbling a bit. Uh Anthony, do you want to talk about like Geraldine/Monica a little bit more and and what you feel like is going on there? Yeah, we had, I I mean we we know uh that this character is not Geraldine, uh that she's that's the identity imposed on her in this sort of fictional universe of the sitcom realm. Uh but uh Monica Rambeau finds herself ejected from the bubble uh after taking a bite of the apple, <laughs> very biblical. <laughs> Again, uh, relating to classic Judeo-Christian imagery uh, tied to depictions of the devil. Um, she's hurled out and we see that there's this, this sort of dome where some events are transpiring. And uh, I think the show is going to begin to split between a little more evenly between what's going on in the bubble where we've been completely immersed for a while and what's going on outside the bubble where people are trying to understand what's happening here. It reminded me of another story um, uh, that was also adapted as a movie. It's not comic book related. Um, and I'm not sure whether it was uh, uh, like officially thought of as an inspiration or not, um, but it's the novel uh, Annihilation. Yeah. Which was made into a movie in 2013, directed by uh, Alex Garland. And it was written by Jeff Vandermeer, but of course was about this piece of a comet that falls to Earth and begins spreading, begins terraforming the planet, begins creating this bubble where mutations happen and one creature is merged with another and sort of otherworldly plants and animals begin to form. And I think... That's what the ending of this episode reminded me of, is that you've got these government officials and scientists trying to understand what this means for us, what's happening here. Is the whole world going to become an 80s American sitcom or a 60s American sitcom? Um, and who's who's doing it? What's happening? Yeah. So that kind of is where we're left for episode four is who's doing this, what's happening. And we are now outside the bubble, getting a little bit of perspective on 
what exactly this show is. I will say my 11-year-old daughter who uh, loves Marvel uh, and all the characters, has seen all the movies, watched all the TV shows, well, all the um, cartoons and things like that. Uh, I, I was, I'm waiting for my kids to watch WandaVision so they can watch it all together because I think they'll enjoy it more if they get to this point sooner rather than waiting weeks to experience, oh, it's like this weird sitcom world. But she, on her own, started watching it. I caught her watching it on her iPad, and I was like, hey, so do you know what's going on? And she looked up at me and gave me a big smile and goes, I have no idea. <laughs> she doesn't even really get – she doesn't even get the 60s sitcom. Yeah, she's not yeah. watched those. So she's like, I have no idea what the, what this means or what's happening. So I think, like, um, at, the, uh, at the point where we, we get a l- little bit of grounding – in the real world, the real world, quote unquote, yeah, uh, it'll help. It'll help everybody sort of orient themselves to what's happening under the bubble. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. Uh, a lot of the feedback we got, you know, Richard read, read a couple uh, emails that we got um, in the first half of the episode, and, and mostly the complaints that I've heard from people is that they're like, they want to get to the mystery already. They don't want to like spend too much time in the sitcom world. And I feel like those of us who got the first three episodes together as like a little preview package, like I wasn't worried about that because I knew that Monica gets booted in episode three. <laughs> so like, you know, we are outside the sitcom pastiche now uh, going forward. Not not entirely, but like, you know, as you say, like, we're going to get some external um, answers pretty quick now, I would say. Um, my my que- what's unclear. So what's clear to me is that Monica Rambeau, what seems to be clear to me is that Monica Rambeau tries to get into this bubble to get to Wanda. Uh, as Agnes mentions, she doesn't have a home. Uh, the character of Geraldine doesn't have a home in the neighborhood. You know, she's a, she's an outlier uh, for, for a number of different reasons. But what's unclear to me is how much it was that Geraldine was like pretending uh, that Monica was pretending to be Geraldine and how much of it is she sort of loses who she is the closer she gets to Wanda and Wanda's reality warping abilities. Do you know what I mean? And I, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people here are under like her under her spell and that Geraldine was able to break through uh, or Monica was able to break through um, in a way that maybe some of the other characters can't. Um, but when you, when she talks about, you know, she's she's playing a character a sassy sitcom character of some kind um and then her voice changes completely when she starts to talk about pietro so it's either that she like consciously dropped the act or she broke through of the spell um for a second when she's talking about wanda's brother pietro um who we will talk about a little more in a second. So I, I I don't know. And I don't know how much Agnes is pretending or is also a little bit under Wanda's spell. And I don't understand. I don't know how, how much any of the neighbors are. And I don't know how much vision is like, I think that's, that's the question. Like who, who's in control of what, at what given time and who's playing what part, you know, is this where we uh, should dive into wonder man and the grim reaper? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And so this is but this is where I start to get a little cautious because I think all right um it deviates from the MCU where the vision was created in part using the brainwaves of this character called uh Wonder Man who was a villain who became a good guy it gets very soap opera it's almost more soap opera than comic book mm-hmm. <laughs> although the two genres share a lot in common um 
Uh, but there's also this character of the Grim Reaper, who's the brother of Wonder Man, who hates Vision because he sees him as like an abomination, like as a as a as a mockery of his brother, uh, the Wonder Man, uh, uh, this sort of bastardization, so to speak. And um, there's something that happens in this episode with the Vision that has him. Uh, it's not a power I remember ever seeing Vision no, actually have. It's not. Remember where he he so he picks up the Doctor and he can travel him super fast to uh, the house. Yeah, and he can move with super speed. Like I don't, I don't remember the remember Vision just being all, having all sort of Superman's abilities. <laughs> so right. uh, so this was new. He could fly, right? But he uh, but uh, I, why he didn't just fly was curious to me. So. I kind of wonder if we're really seeing the vision here who we know died uh, uh, when his infinity stone was ripped from his forehead in uh, infinity war. So is somebody inside the bubble playing the part of vision? So there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple fun options. Is it Wonder Man? Yeah, there's a couple fun options. Okay, so like, here's, here's one scenario. Who, who, oh, one, I should finish the thought. Wonder oh, Man can move with super speed. So yes. that's why, that's why we're drawing that connection. Exactly. I forgot to put punctuation. <laughs> well, there's, there's a couple fun options. Number one, let's say Wanda in her despair at having lost vision. Uh, recreates him somehow outside of the bubble. And that immense amount of power that it would take for someone to recreate someone like that is what caught the attention of maybe Mephisto and Agnes, right? That's an option, right? So she's created this vision and in doing so, she's given him some of her brother's powers, which is super speed. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's Mm. something that happened, right? Another option is that there's this bubble that exists, this mysterious bubble that they're trying to figure out what it is and they send Wanda in, but they don't send her alone. They send her with someone. Uh, and maybe who that person is is Wonder Man. And maybe once she got inside the bubble, Wanda in her like sitcom fantasy where she has created this happily ever after for herself, turned her companion into Vision when in fact he's Wonder Man, which would be a fun nod to the comics of like um, Wonder Man is sort of the basis for Vision, right? So maybe that's actually Wonder Man. Uh, who she's sort of spelled into looking like or thinking that he's Vision, right? Yep. Um, and then a third one is that it was someone already in the bubble, Mephisto himself, et cetera, who is playing the part of Vision. That that could be possible. Um, but those are some options. I love the Wonder Man option, and here's a couple different reasons why. Um, one, uh, <laughs> some eagle-eyed viewer on Reddit noticed that um, there is Wonder Man uh, concept art uh, in the photo, in the background of an interview that Jack Schaefer gave for like a package, there's like Wonder Man art on the wall, right? Uh, which is fun and interesting. I, I would like it to be Wonder Man and I would like Wonder Man to look like Paul Bettany. That's what I would like because <laughs> I want to keep Paul Bettany. But like it would be kind of fun if it's Wonder Man. And that way Paul Bettany can like exist on in the MCU. Like Vision's dead, but Paul Bettany lives on sort of thing. Um... Uh, Wonder Man is canonically uh, in the comics. He's an actor in real life. Uh, like that's his alter ego, Simon Williams. So uh, you know, maybe they gave they gave Wanda a super superhero actor to go into this bubble with her to help her 
with whatever pretense she was going to have to try to like perform. Basically, I think she got ensorcelled into the bubble and then took and then is so powerful that her fantasy took over the bubble. That seems to me to be what we're looking at here. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes sense to me. Okay. It does. Right. I think the, uh, you know, I like that they, we, we, you know, we're kind of like dete- detecting, doing a little detective work here and narrowing it down to like a couple of different suspects and possibilities. And that's what you've got to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. So these are just like some fun, likely, likely stories. Once again, inspired by like smarter people than I am on the internet. And also definitely a lot of it comes from our producer, Dave, who talks to me all the time about WandaVision. Uh, something to note in this episode that I think is interesting when Geraldine slash Monica gets kicked out of the bubble is that her 70s clothes stay on her. Mm. Um, so this idea that like what Wanda creates in there can exist outside of the bubble, which I think is interesting. That's interesting, too. It has implications for whether some of these creations, these children, these other beings can right. uh, exist outside. Uh, yeah, and then a couple, the bubble is burst. a couple other quick things, then we can be done. Uh, one is, uh, both Matt Shackman in the interview and this week and Kevin Feige in the interview last week talked about the aspect ratio shifting. You'll note at the end of this episode, as we move from Wanda's, uh, oh, one last thing about a created vision. Uh, some people are wondering if like, you know, this isn't vision, it's Wanda's vision, Wanda vision sort of thing. Uh. Um, uh the aspect ratio shifts from the from the 70s uh framing and then it it you know it it expands out to the full to full widescreen um when we're in the external world so just to keep maybe keep an eye on those aspect ratios when you're trying to figure out this is a trick that westworld used all the time when you're trying to figure out what's real and what's not look at the aspect ratios and maybe that'll right. help you uh to know um uh, the hex imagery is something that a lot of people have pointed out. That's um, in the comics, uh, Scarlet Witch she's use, uses hex bolts. And there's a lot of like hexagonal design work uh, in the show, which is just like a fun detail. And then the last thing I want to talk about uh, before we go is is Quicksilver. So what are your thoughts about Pietro being name dropped in this episode? and And what could it mean for the future, Anthony? Oh boy. So obviously Pietro is a big part of Wanda's past and her present and her future, just as anybody who loses a beloved sibling carries that with them their whole lives. Um, the question is, what's she going to do about it? She's lost vision. She, maybe she has recreated vision. Is she going to try to bring Pietro back? You know, right. there are some rumors. I don't know how deep we want to get into that because I know we've pledged not to be too spoilery, but um, I think we'd say it's a rumor because it's not it's not confirmed. So I think we can no. say casting rumors. Casting rumors suggest Evan Peters is going to be on this show, and he played um, Pietro in the X Men, yeah. which is a separate universe from the MCU. And if we're going to get into Wanda slicing holes in various dimensions and bringing characters in from other universe, uh, other realms, other <laughs> in universe now substitutes as other movie franchises. <laughs> uh, it's 
that'd be kind of a cool thing if she if she wants to summon her brother bring her brother back and she ends up with this version that's not quite the brother she knew but it came back wrong <laughs> yep. i like the idea that both there's there's a theory that maybe both aaron taylor johnson and evan peters will be in this season and that could like you were talking about some of the spider-man three casting that could help drive home this idea of a multiverse right this idea of like mm-hmm. there are multiple quicksilvers um and um so so paul bettany has said so next week's episode is episode the 80s episode it's a family ties episode and paul bettany has said in interviews that this is based on a very famous episode of family ties where tom hanks plays oh my god the uh, what (laughs) Uh, okay sorry i remember this episode vividly yeah Yeah. he plays the fun uncle who actually winds up being uh having an alcohol problem um so like some people are like uh, if if we're bringing in an uncle, could it be Uncle Pietro? Uh, could this be where Evan Peters and or Aaron Taylor Johnson arrive in the show in next week's episode to stand in for the Tom Hanks uh, figure? Uh, what what do you think, Anthony? Uh, as long as he drinks <laughs> from a bottle of. Uh, uh, vanilla extract in order to get drunk i'm okay with you I, that has to be part of the homage in some way <laughs> every time i make french toast or cookies or a cake and i use <laughs> vanilla extract i think of tom hanks drinking it because he could find no other alcohol in the keaton's household uh every time yeah. it's classic <laughs> classic sitcom episode a very young tom hanks um, when he was still sort of like a, a skinny little comedian. So you might want to go check that out, uh, to prepare yourself. <clears throat> it could be that, like, maybe, uh, it's not going to be, uh, Pietro. Maybe it's going to be, uh, Agnes. They call her Auntie Agnes. So maybe Agnes will take on the Tom Hanks role. You don't know. We don't know. But, um, it could be. This could be an, you know, they drop him at the end of the, they name drop at the end of this episode. He's on her mind. He's on Wanda's mind. Maybe Wanda tries to manifest him. And maybe in doing so, that's an inciting sort of rip in the multiverse or something like that. Who knows? Um, but I'm excited for that uh, possibility. <laughs> um, a very yeah. a very special episode of WandaVision. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, they've, they've uh, originally they said there weren't going to be episode titles. They told they told me that. But um but they have uh, given them titles. Uh, Don't Touch That Dial was one of them. Uh, so I, I do like the idea of episode four being called a very special episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that would be really fun. Um, the very last thing I want to say, and, and you actually gave me this idea. Uh, so thank you for it. They keep calling this show a love story, right? And and we've suspected that the main love story at play here is is Wanda and Vision, and Wanda's desire to hold on to Vision, this this love of her life whom she's lost, right? Um, but you mentioned Ralph as being <laughs> someone who was who was um killed at the Salem witch trials. So I'm like, okay, what if Ralph is Agnes's actual husband? And maybe he was the devil, you know, that was the whole thing in the Salem Witch Trials, that the witches were, like, consorting with the devil. Maybe he is the devil, maybe he's just a powerful warlock, whatever. Uh, maybe he dies, and maybe she tried to bring him back. And that was the inciting incident for the bubble in the first place. And, and so it's her love story as well, that she has suffered a similar tragedy, and is similarly trying to hold on to someone she loved. And that would make her... um 
you know, maybe she only got us so far as to turning him into animals and she can't quite make him human yet. And that's what she needs the shards for. Um, I don't know. This is me spitballing, but like, but I like, what I do like the idea is this, like, this is a love story for her as well. And in that way, her story echoes with Wanda's and Wanda's going to have to make the choice that Mm -hmm. Agnes couldn't, which is to let Vision go. Do you know? Huh. Yeah. Well, there's one correction I would make. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Which was that Ralph Hall and his wife, Mary, oh. were not executed. Oh, okay. They, Ralph was acquitted. Mm. And this is, I think, slightly before the Salem witch trial, or so- somewhat separate, but he was acquitted, but his wife was not, she wasn't executed, but they maintained suspicion. Mm. Okay. So, like, um... Maybe that's part of it, like that these characters sort of escaped the Salem witch trials and are still like floating around. But I'm not sure if there were actual witches that human beings would have been able to execute them in the Marvel Cinematic (laughs) Universe. They just used their powers to escape or destroy those threats. Um, But yeah, but otherwise, yes, I agree with everything you said. It's just that I think I think Ralph and Agnes. uh, they've survived. They're survivors. Yeah, I, I think Agnes is either an unwilling sort of thrall to Ralph, mm-hmm. um, and given the the very shots she takes at him, maybe that's the case. Or, you know, he's the love of her life, and she's trying to save him or rescue him somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, couple different and possibilities there. Yeah, I wonder if, if we went back and decoded some of her jokes too. Because remember when the power goes out and she's like, "That's okay, Ralph looks better in the dark." Like, yeah, exactly. You know, Ralph, if Mephisto looks like the hot sauce devil, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, maybe that's what she means. Yeah. So, um, exactly. To pay pay close attention to her little like Ralph Ralph ribs. Something things to look for in episode four. Ralph jokes, an animal of some kind, <laughs> her interest in the kids. And uh, that bottle of vanilla extract. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, anything else? I mean, like I said, I feel like I have a better grasp of maybe what's going on. We've got a a couple different branching potentialities, but a better grasp on maybe something that's going on here. Uh, My understanding is that Randall Park, uh, uh, you know, he's playing an FBI agent. He's Mm -hmm. still got his FBI jacket on in in the trailer. So I don't know that he's working for S.W.O.R.D. yet, but maybe he's consulting for S.W.O.R.D. Um, And then Darcy, uh, you know, is a is is a scientist. Basically, they need a, a law enforcement officer of some kind, an agent of some kind, and a scientist of some, some kind. They reached into their MCU pockets and plucked Kat Dennings and Randall Park, two sitcom actors, um, into this universe to fill those roles. So I feel like we're going to see uh, Randall Park, Kat Dennings, and Tiana Paris as our external to the bubble crew. And then we've got our inside the bubble crew going on. I feel like we're right where they want us to be. We're outside. We've got the lay of the land. <laughs> yeah. We're not sure where it's going. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, all right. Anything else you want to you wanna say before we see folks next week? I'm good, man. Everybody stay safe out there. All right. Stay safe. Uh, you can find me on tw- – you can find both of us at VanityFair.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find Richard on Twitter at Rylaws and Anthony. Where can folks find you? Just find me on VanityFair.com. Perfect. Stories. A perfect place to be. <laughs> all right. Uh, we will see you all uh, in back in the neighborhood next week.
We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. 